Welcome to the Sports Surgery Clinic's Surgical Advances podcast, On the Table. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Franklin-Miller, and this podcast is designed to delve into some of the research and evidence behind many of the commonly occurring orthopedic operative interventions. We get a chance to ask the questions many of you will be considering on what influences a surgeon's decision-making and how, as a referrer, we can put them and our patient in the best position. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Mr. Ray Morin, consultant orthopedic surgeon uh, and medical director of the Sports Surgery Clinic. Uh, Ray, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Cheers, Andy. Good to, good to hear from you. Uh, Ray, for those, those very few people who, who aren't aware of, of your background, you might just spend a minute or so just talking me through your training and, and experience. Okay. Um, I basically did the orthopedic training program in, uh, in Ireland. Uh, did fellowship abroad then in Atlanta and also in Nottingham. Uh, I kind of came back then. It was um, got into sports because um, the demand was there for it. I guess um, the brother uh, Kevin, that <laughs> was also a non-trainer in many ways because everybody knows patients always assumed I'd have a lot of empathy for them in terms of sports injuries and that because of the fact that Kevin had a high profile in terms of Dublin and Manchester United. So uh, that was largely the start of it and uh, got, got into the sports end of it much more so. And that was the early kind of development days of the ACL and ACL reconstructions, relatively speaking. So it would have been from about the early 90s onwards in relationship to it. So, um, yeah, that was really, really the background. It was when we were beginning to make progress in terms of surgical options for the ACL that a lot of stuff had gone prior to that in terms of... Uh, synthetics etc and you know, there's been a kind of fairly high uh, try it out and failure rate for a lot of treatments so this is just really the stage in which autographs are coming online and um, and and some changes in technique as well so it was a kind of an exciting time to be around for and, and many of those um certainly in the uk might be not aware of your strong links to the us and many of your contemporaries in terms of both running courses and links with hss and the stedman clinic you might just talk about some of those relationships yeah it's funny one thing read another very good colleague and friend of mine steve o'brien in hospital for special surgery in new york um a very close collaboration with steve over the years we ran a uh, i ran with charlie brown who was from boston currently in Abu Dhabi, a great um, uh, ACL surgeon. Um, and we ran a course jointly with Charlie here in Dublin for uh, 22, 23 years on surgical technique in relationship to the uh, ACL. So we had a big international faculty for that. But half the faculty came from the US and half the faculty came from Europe. And um, it was a wonderful opportunity. We presented to patients, and then we had cadaver teaching uh, workstations, etc. So it was probably a little bit ahead of its time at, at that stage, and we kind of built up great friendships and uh, colleagues over the years. And indeed, even from my point of view, over the years, it's been tremendous uh, knowledge base to be able to touch base with in terms of difficult cases or second opinions or third opinions, or whatever the case may be. So, you know, that's a, it's funny. It, when you get into an area like this and it's so international, um, there's a lot of uh, commonality in terms of the issues that come up and how to manage them and having that kind of a cohort of experts to face with easily has been a tremendous uh, advantage to me uh, and a great uh, source of uh, relief to me indeed over the years. 
Uh, absolutely. And Ray, we're going to focus on, on the ACL today. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of those controversies and, and decisions and, and challenges that sort of face an incredibly common condition. You might just start us off by talking a little bit about the ACL itself and and what you see in terms of a ruptured ACL, but also how that decision-making starts when you're faced with a patient in front of you. Yeah, um, the ACL itself is a, it's a, a ligament in the central anterior cruciate ligament, originally known as the crucial ligament. Uh, they help to control rotation in, term, in terms of change of direction. If you look at the ACL and the uh, human, it's a kind of a modest enough structure uh, compared to the size of the joint itself. And a lot of this goes back to the fact that the human uh, really isn't a rotational animal. Uh, there are indeed animals out there that have, uh, in many ways, one might consider more sophisticated uh, cruciates than we have. Um, uh, I remember Freddie Fugue giving the example of um, uh, the mountain lion, which is a triple bundle ACL because its um, survival, survivorship rather depends on it not losing on losing balance on the edge of purchase, etc. So ours is much more kind of modest by comparison, and I guess the it would serve us well for most activities, except when it came to sport. So uh, evolution didn't take sport into consideration to any great extent, and. So our sports, which are just largely change of directional sports, sudden pivoting, uh, just puts a strain on the ACL. And it's just proved over time that even with uh, just change of direction, non-contact, which is what most of those injuries are. So um, it's uh, it just proved vulnerable to that particular maneuver involved in sport more than anything else. So that, to a large extent, is, is, the, is the issue with, uh, with the ACL itself, why it's, why it's vulnerable. Uh, it's very much uh, in the predominantly in the sporting uh, arena. And and when that patient comes into you uh, into the office um, with with what can be quite devastating news in terms of the potential time course or the time loss uh, related to the to the repair or the recovery. Um, what are the sort of things that you're discussing with or or looking for in in making that decision to go ahead with a reconstruction? Okay, if we can take, um, I guess, to some extent, do you need an ACL reconstruction uh, at all? Well, if you take two ends of the spectrum here, if you take the kind of younger 20-year-old patient who plays for a team, keen into keen into team play, keen to get back, it's a pretty easy decision to make that when you see them in an the acute scene that they should have a prehabilitation program, work and strengthening with a view to an ACL reconstruction. And I think most of the data would support going the route of stabilizing those knees in terms of outcome. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, perhaps older patient, you know, could be somebody 50, 60s, my age, whatever. Um, if I had a twisting episode, it could maybe a, um, a whatever. And, and basically, would I have an ACL done myself? Well, quite possibly not, because my demand level wouldn't be there for the use of it. So you don't do it for the sake of doing it you do it if the demand level is there going forward in terms of rotational activity and that usually defines itself pretty pretty clearly early on i think the patient coming into your consult uh, with an acute injury and probably covers the majority um most times the yeah, does the, the the upset at the initial injury but actually i find they, they get over it remarkably quickly and they you know they 
athletes in particular, they very much adapt to focus very quickly. Okay, what are we going to do about it? You know, so the, the, the grief period tends to be quite short. And I think it's short and further when you have a plan, uh, when you point a plan out to them. And uh, they go out of the council most, or most times uh, kind of focused on the treatment and getting over it as opposed to uh, kind of what you might call dwelling too much on the injury itself. And, and the debate um, regarding the potential for conservative rehabilitation uh, or non-operative management, certainly driven out of Australia originally, um, Krauss published a recent review um, looking at the direct results in terms of the comparison and actually found it would be in agreement with yourself in the terms of 20% revert to surgery, the similar osteoarthritis rates in longer term follow-up. So, so that sort of early push that, look, we can manage these without an operation doesn't necessarily mean we ought to manage them without an operation. Pretty much. I think that's what you have to give to the patient as a choice. I mean, it's, I always make the point that it's not an acute surgery emergency. You have choice here. Try and balance it in terms of... Um, you know, the pros and cons of both situations. Um, I think the whole debate with regards to osteoarthritis and stuff is, is, a, is a difficult one because, I mean, I think a lot of knees will pick up some degree of wear and tear. Many of them come back in 20, 30, 40 years' time with joint replacements. I think it's actually a relatively small, relatively small number. So I don't think patients should be terrified of that. And I do think I'd be using that as the reason whether to do or not to do in terms of ligament reconstruction. I think the data certainly isn't there to say that uh, doing an ACL reconstruction makes a difference in the generative change in the longer term. I just think whether you treat a patient conservatively or operatively um, probably doesn't have a huge influence on the rate of osteoarthritis, which from a clinical point of view is actually not as big an issue as people make it out to be. And, and I think you touched on this earlier in terms of a plan, and obviously non-operative management still requires a significant amount of work. The, the work involved in return to strength, power, running, change of direction is there regardless um, and so one of the real benefits, I think, of a surgical approach here is the ability to give pretty fixed timelines. And you hinted on that earlier in terms of it's very reassuring for the patient to know what colleagues have gone through before, I would have thought. Very much so. And um, as you like to say, you've got a roll up in front of you. Um, usually when you see the knee, and it's like, um, remarkable how variable it is, the uh, clinical presentation in an acute situation. You get some which are kind of small and boggy, really painful, and then you get others oh, who've had an acute injury, and it's a really quiet type of injury, biologically quiet. They get their movement back very quickly, perhaps even very little swelling. And a lot of those, they would have a big doubt um, with regards to whether it sustained the injury at all. I've had patients who were ambulance cases after the injury initially, and I've had other patients who managed to play on. I mean, clearly, the first twisting episode tore their ACL. And they may have gone a couple of times during the same game. So biologically, it presents remarkably differently uh, in, in patient to patient. But if you're laying out a plan for them going forward, and a lot of time with players and team players in particular, they'll have seasons in mind, uh, start a season where it's, you have to figure all of that out. And to some extent, that can have some influence with regards to your decision making. But at least I think we can safely say that we can get a certain amount of certainty with regards to outcomes on the surgical end of things. So even though the post-operative pathway may vary a lot from patient to patient, you can still be ballparking it in terms of return to play. And uh, we, you know, we've got pretty, pretty solid data on that in terms of return to play versus the conservative management. So that's why I'd very much 
go the route of giving them something definitive in terms of surgical reconstruction and uh, and, and, a, and a timeline, which I think the vast majority of uh, competitive sports people would respond very positively to. Absolutely. And look, and, and the sports surgery clinic is is well known as a centre for for ACL. Uh, reconstruction and rehabilitation. You recently published a paper in the American Journal of Sports Medicine this year um, with a very big series of of prospectively followed uh, up patients at two years. Um, what, where do those patients come from? There's there's over fifteen hundred patients in in that study. That's a lot of patients. Yeah, to be honest, it was one thousand four hundred and thirty-two. <laughs> slightly, slightly below the fifteen hundred, but a, a very big number. And uh, the, it was a very um, gratifying paper from many perspectives, not least from the tremendous work that Andy King and the Deidre itself Andy did in terms of input. But uh, one of the fantastic features was the the uh, follow-up rate was over ninety-five percent. The return to play rate was over 80%, and the good majority of these were at level one sports as defined by uh, high twist rotational type sports. So, you know, the re injury rates uh, were pretty low, in fact. Um, there two grafts used patellar tendon graft and the hamstring graft, and the patellar tendon had the lower uh, rate of re injury, uh, but uh, it was below 2%, which is a very um, uh, satisfying outcome in relationship to it. And to have that level of follow-up, to have that level of return to play, and to have that low level of re-injury is kind of very solid stats to be going on on such a big cohort of patients uh, to be able to tell the patient come from. We do this, then we do it that way. Uh, this is the likely outcome. To it's, to me, it's pretty compelling uh, narrative to be given to any patient when they're sitting in front of you with regards to likely outcomes in terms of return to play. And and in terms of getting those outcomes, um, I, I know that these were predominantly patella tendon grafts. Can you talk us through those sort of the most critical factors for you in the post-operative management of, of your patients post-ACL reconstruction? Yeah, well, there's a kind of few things you, you you want to keep an eye to. I mean, I think early mobilization is um, tremendously important. Uh, weight bearing is tolerated. Uh, assist crutches uh, just for assistance rather than for weight bearing. The key part, of course, is the prehabilitation, making sure that if I don't rush this up, I usually make sure that they've got good movement back into it and got good early quads function. So you know, four to six weeks, even in a, in a high-level athlete, is time well spent, and I often make the point to them that they get that time back on the other end if they prepare for the surgery correctly. I usually encourage crutches then, um, as I say, not for weight-bearing, but for balance, and two rather than one, so they won't lean off center, and kind of encourage that until the limp is gone. So people often say, how long do you need the crutches for two, three, four? No, I said, don't worry about the time. Look at the function. You need them until you got rid of your limp and get somebody else to tell you you got rid of it because people are not a great gauge of that themselves. Key is as well, restoration of full range of motion. Absolute key again with that is getting full extension early on. And uh, one of the big problems can arise if that's not really pushed hard. Uh, they can develop uh, flexion contracture. They can develop what's called a cyclops lesion where you get scarring at the root of the uh, graft anteriorly. And, you can almost get rid of that as a problem uh, in the primary ACL patient by 
really working vigorously on, on achieving early full extension and good quads. So early quads activation is huge. And trying to avoid unnecessary overloading of the extensor mechanism. Uh, for example, caution given to the introduction of deep squats and lunges and running, for example. We're easy and all that early on. Also avoid hamstring overload. Uh, go a little easy on open chain type exercises. And also it's very key that patients are clued in, which they usually are. They find kind of sporty people, they get it. And with so much on the kind of web and all the rest of it nowadays, they're very well informed. So they take control of this themselves and you're kind of guiding them more than anything else. So that's what physio is to guide them as opposed to be too dogmatic in terms of the management. And in this paper, it showed that the re-injury rate was far higher for those who underwent hamstring graft than a bone patella bone um, and graft. And so why do you do what you do? So so in making that decision of which type of graft, why would anyone deviate from a from a bone patella bone? And, and tell us maybe a little bit about the actual surgical technique itself, because obviously the decision-making in theatre is something that you've developed over a career um, on over 600 ACL patients a year. Yeah, I must admit, um, my early early days, um, the exposure to it in, in, in Atlanta as well was, was patellar tendon. It just come to the fore really at that stage. So I guess I started off with it because it's what I got used to early on. It's, um, and it served well over the years in relation to it. Um, it's interesting the difference there between it and hamstring. It doesn't make hamstring a bad graft. My own, if I had, I always use patellar tendon unless I had a reason not to. The reasons not to can include patellar tendinopathy or some irritability with regards to the patellar tendon itself. It could involve um, kids with open physes uh, because the technique of patellar tendons where you harvest a, a portion of patellar tendon and some piece of bone off the adjacent patella and tuberosity. So you have a, a, a new ligament with two bony ends. Now you don't want a bony end across growth plate, for example. So you'd often go the route of um, using the hamstrings in those patients. So it'd be, but it doesn't make hamstring a bad option. And in fact, the, if we could look at, you know, over 90% of the hamstrings, uh, the, the failure rate in that was 8%, so still 92% of them um, were okay and back to playing at the two-year period. It's just that the rate of uh, re-injury on the patellar tendon was just 1.3%, which is just a remarkably low figure. So it's more that contrast is not to make it sound like hamstrings a bad idea. But I, I take the point. If I've got a patient sitting in front of me, a sporty patient, I've got to come up with a good reason not to use autogenous PTB or patellar tendon graft. And if I have that conversation with any patient, and I often do, but they often bring up the issue of graft type because they've been reading it on the, on the uh, internet. And uh, so that would be my case. I mean, it's, I'm not making the case against hamstrings, but I'm simply making the case that put, put both together, they're your re-injury rates. And uh, I wouldn't have a strong reason for deviating from that. And invariably, I leave it with the patient for the decision, but it'd be a, I can hardly think of a case where a patient hasn't gone that route in relationship to it. It's interesting, some patients also, would, you know, what's out there is, um, as well, the problems associated with teller tendon. And, you know, it's a harder hit on the quads initially, and sure, they've got to work it harder. And there's no doubt that patellar anterior knee pain is a bigger issue. Uh, for them, uh, certainly than it will be with a hamstring uh, hamstring patient. But still, it's kind of, um, there's a sense out there that patellar tendon grafts give more trouble than they actually do. Now, we do very large numbers of them, 
and it's just not a recurring problem. I was just looking at a, a review article there in last, uh, last year's uh, American Journal of Sports Medicine, which was a systematic review of meta-analysis for outcomes of quads versus patellar tendon versus hamstrings. And the kind of introductory comment was, uh, some, orthopedic sur- some orthopedic surgeons still consider the bone patellar tendon bone graft to be the standard for ACL reconstruction, despite the well-documented morbidities, including post-operative anterior knee pain, difficulty kneeling, possible patellar fracture and patellar tendon rupture. Now, frankly, if you get in the latter two, you shouldn't be doing it, that is for sure. But the issue of anterior knee pain and kneeling, I get a lot of patients who are plumbers and carpenters, and frankly, they don't have it. Once they get over the first two or three months, they get over it, and you desensitize it by kneeling on it. So a lot of the kind of perceived issues in relationship to patellar tendon graft are actually more perceived than real. And, and Ray, we've talked a, a lot in the past about the sort of, it's one of those worlds where there's almost a quest to reinvent the procedure um, via a variety of different methods almost every year. You know, we single bundle, double bundle, the Australians suggesting using tissue from kangaroo tails. And of course, we went through that phase of ligament assisted repair uh, using a, a Kevlar type um, artificial ligament. And now the, the movement's back towards quadriceps tendon. I, can you talk us through the, the logic behind the the continual shift? And I guess that, that review paper suggests why in many respects. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it, it, it kind of not cynical about it over time. But, you, you know, we, we do have a tendency to kind of want to change things. From, you know, you want to come up with something new. You want to come up with something, you know, that the next meeting, next paper, whatever. It's very hard to, what you would call, sustain the sameness of um, something like patellar tendon and indeed hamstrings that have been around for a long, long time. And one of the, a lot of effort has gone into uh, trying alternatives, augmentation. Indeed, uh, the LARS, the so-called ligament augmentation and reconstruction system, uh, that went through a flurry of um, of, of uh, coverage about eight, ten years ago when patients were being told that um, you know they could get back to play very early on it. And the theory here was that when you put in an autograph, it has to vascularize, and there's a period of maybe from eight to twelve weeks where it's quite weak, and it has to pick up a vascular supply, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But somehow, if you use this artificial uh, ligament, that that would that would uh, kind of circumvent that problem. And that you'd be able to get back playing. Well, the trouble is, this figures just didn't sustain that. And these ran into problems. Plus, other issues they ran into, like synovitis, and like a fairly high high level of, re, uh, of re-op um, rate. So, you know, we kind of keep getting away from something and getting back to it for whatever reason. And, but it's not that difficult, I think, to comprehend. Using your own tissue works better than anything else we've come up with. One of the most remarkable things about any of the autogenous grass is the ingrowth, the manner in which the structure, you can move it from A to B, which means you've clearly devascularized at the time that you can leave those knees free and take full weight bearing, but it doesn't disintegrate anything but that it actually vascularizes up in an absolutely predictable fashion. Um, and it's really, really, really difficult to disrupt, even if a person slips or has an accident early on. You know, so you have something that's really a gold standard in terms of treatment. I think 
human nature will always want to vary away from that and come up with something new and no issue with that and you know that's it's what keeps us curious going forward but it's got one gold standard that it's got to compete against and until you know and the fact there i say i love reading about it. Uh, ACL uh, repair is another case in point. I mean, it's uh, it, it's um, it's something that's been tried and gone at many a time. But in the end of the day, if we look at it and compare it directly with reconstruction, it's not winning out. And of course, the athlete and the surgeon share that quest in terms of the expediency of going back to sports. And so I, I can see why you know people will will try. Um, Andrew and I were at. PSG earlier in the year, listening to Bertrand Sonnery Cotet from Lyon, and, and, and he was mentioning some work that he'd done himself and published on on that assisted ligament repair, where sort of weaving a synthetic um, ligament support through um, the the proximal stump of the the ACL to try to expedite that. Um, but by his own admission, these are a, a small exploratory studies, but. Do you see a resurgence in that work, or, or again, would you go back to that? Look, the tried and tested is the benchmark here. Yeah, I, I would see um, great uh, merit in that work and continuing that work. I think um, his work is mainly lab based rather than clinically based. Nothing wrong with that. It has to be done in the lab in the first instance before you contemplate its application. In it's not that. Uh, re- repair isn't carried out. But if you look at the studies in relationship to repair, particularly in relationship to repair versus uh, reconstruction, when you put side by side, there isn't a, an example really within the repair uh, situation that it would outgun the, the, the reconstruction. I mean, I think um, Bruce Ryder, uh, the editor of the American Journal of Sports Medicine, did a very nice editorial on this last year. He done one a good number of years back. He said the quest, and the more recently called the quest continues. And what he was really referring to here was the, um, and he does a very good, was the uh, ability of how well is the status and the current status uh, for uh, repair versus reconstruction. I think in his last paragraph, he don't want to be quoting on it. Uh, and the quest for a reliable primary ACL repair continues. Some of the reported results seem promising. Uh, while others are downright discouraging. Uh, and in particular, younger patients or those with higher level of activities appear to challenge the capability of current technique. And he, he, does, he has this at the end of a very balanced um, editorial on the topic. So the quest does go on. Um, you know, it's a good quest. I think the idea of coming up with a, a repair technique that works with very low re-injury rates would be the obvious preferable way to go. Well, until such time as you can sit a patient down in front of you and sort of say, hey, I can e- equate the results of repair with reconstruction, I think it would be a difficult uh, sell for me to a patient uh, until such time as that arises. And particularly as I really find that the issue of graft harvest when it comes to ACL reconstruction is is not anything like the problem that's made out to be. And and Ray, when you're when you're placing the graft, how much of um, the the skill set here is learned in terms of the tension? Because certainly with the ligament repairs, 
um, getting the tension of the of the suture or the or the artificial ligament seems to be a challenge. Whereas presumably clinical feel, the more you do of these, the the positioning and the tensioning of that of the bone patella bone graft is something that you can reliably reproduce. Yeah, whatever. In the early uh, days. Uh Certainly, when I started back in the nineties, there was a kind of an isometer measure measure for tensioning, where you put this onto the graft, and you just. But after that, you sort of say, "Well, do we need this at all or not?" And you, you use kind of hand control, and essentially, you fix the graft in the femur. You know, the, the second part is fixing it in the tibia. You kind of wind up and down the knee on a bunch of occasions just to pre-tension the graft. And you're using what I would call a reasonable pull in relationship to it. And you do it not at extension, but just short of extension. Because even as the knee goes from almost extended to full extended, there's several millimeters of take up of the graft. And you're using a reasonable pull, but not an overwhelming pull. But, you know, again, to turn that into a high science in terms of the exact Newton force you're using, it just really doesn't tend to be necessary. You know, you're pulling it with reasonable tension and you just tighten it at that and that is what works and and re-injury ray we might just sort of spend a minute or two just discussing that what are the challenges so so you know our our quest has been to drive down the injury rate um to those very low levels and certainly that's what we've seen in this work um we're very careful to track these patients after surgery um, using 3D biomechanics and a, and a laboratory in order to to give the patient and yourself guidance on on allowing that sort of criteria led um, rehab. But but if the patient does re-injure, what are the challenges then? Um, I mean, it, the ability to uh, redo uh, to uh, do a revision reconstruction is certainly there. There's some technical issues. But it, it is there. I think uh, for a lot of those, we may use an alternative ligament. And quite often, for example, if I do, get, when I get a rupture of a, of a patellar tendon graft, if I'm doing a revision, I'll revise using a hamstring from the same side and augment that then with a lateral tenodesis or an extra articular tenodesis. And, you know, it's kind of a belt and braces approach to add kind of um, a double uh, kind of. Uh, restraint to the rotational effect that occurs in injury. And uh, I can't run the stats on that straight off, but I'm more than happy with the outcome of it. um, I think you touched on something there, Andy, which was uh, that shouldn't get understated. We we have, um, with with practically all of those patients in the study, uh, they would have come back intermittently, usually on about two or three occasions, uh, to the sports surgery clinic and have Isaac kinetic and biomechanical testing and we were able to use that then uh, to feed that data and information back to their physios uh, to be help help guide their rehabilitation program spot the um, the deficits at an early stage and roughly speaking that was usually about four seven ten months uh, after the surgery and uh, it doesn't mean they got to wait the 10 months for uh, return to play quite often the return to play would be between the second and third testing uh, but I think that was a very significant uh, contributor it's not all about surgical technique by any means very significant contributor uh, to having uh, kept the uh, numbers of re-injury to the low rates that they're at and, and of course we're looking forward to sharing some of that data and the 
the uh, computer learning that we're doing in terms of features from that which might well be able to on a more personalized level prescribe interventions um, so that we can help their sort of ongoing physio and we can provide from the clinic a more sort of advisory service in terms of which detailed areas of, of, of rehab to to focus on but of course the the uh, the major fix here is of is the, is the surgery. Ray, I, it, it's been fascinating talking talking through that. We try to keep these to thirty minutes, so we might, we might just um, to to wrap it up there, um, and uh, and say thank you so much for spending some time with us talking us through that uh, ACL repair. Thanks, Andy. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. If you want to find out more information about Ms. Ruth Delaney, her website is www.dublinshoulderinstitute.com and give her a follow on Twitter. That's at rdshoulder. You can find uh, more information about the Sports Surgery Clinic Dublin at www.sportssurgeryclinic.com and following on Twitter at SSC Santry, S-A-N-T-R-Y. Thank you for listening.